This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Alon Ben-Joseph. Alon, welcome. Hi, Ariel. Thank you so much for inviting me. My pleasure. You are one of those faces that I so fondly remember seeing at watch shows that don't exist anymore. You are the co-owner of Ace Jewelers, which to me is the most important watch store in all of the Netherlands. You're in in Amsterdam. (laughs) And, you know, you were one of those people who were sort of on the digital side very, very early. I'm just sort of trying to paint a picture for everyone of how I've come to know you and what I've always sort of seen you as. Ace Jewelers began selling watches online, which was a a very innovative thing to do, starting, I believe, back in the late 1990s. And today is one of the premier uh, businesses around the world that, that sell watches. I know you obviously don't necessarily sell to the entire world, but if you are interested in a great online watch buying experience, Ace definitely has one. Um, and I guess I, I wanted to to ask you, at what point did you realize that you were not going to be the only one selling online? Because for a while, it was kind of like this weird thing. Like you must have thought like, are other retailers going to do this? And then of course, you're like, okay, other people are going to do this. When was that transitional period, you think? So uh, thank you for the intro, Ariel. And uh, I'm also always very happy and uh, keen to see you at uh, these fairs that unfortunately don't exist anymore, but hopefully... Hey, some uh, will come back. Come on, let's be optimistic. Uh, they'll, they'll come back. They'll come back, definitely. And I hope to see you in uh, Geneva in March. Um, and thank you for the intro. We actually have been online since the 90s. Um, I joined a family-owned, family-run business uh, in 98. And that's when we went heavy on our digital strategy. Really to turn on the buy button, which was actually not allowed by the brands because we are an authorized dealer for all the brands we sell. We've been doing uh, certified pre-owned since 75, the year of inception, but we are a authorized dealer and we obviously are friends with the brand. So we follow their wishes. So up until 2007, they literally did not let us sell online. What happened is, in the EU, new antitrust laws were being forged, and that's when suddenly things started to shift. So back in 2007, we went online as an AD, first in the world, where George Kern, back in the day CEO of IWC, granted me that premiere. Now he's at Breitling, but with IWC, we were the first in the world as an AD to sell online, worldwide, then Obviously, it was a new frontier, so there were no rules, there were no guidelines. It was play by ear and uh, learn by doing. So obviously, I knew that everyone one day would go online. Um, What was innovative for our industry wasn't innovative in the world. As most of the people that follow the watch world know, we're not that modern and innovative um, coming to technology. Not mechanical technology, but I'm talking about digital. So... Answering your question, I knew the whole world would go online. I'm a true believer of digital. I'm, I'm, I'm polarized. I love mechanical. That's why I love watches. But I also love digital. So that's why I'm now very deeply involved in Web3, for example. But um, it was fun. After IWC, all other brands within the Richemont Group that we were authorized to sell followed Swatch Group, The Independence, LVMH, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And has been an amazing journey now, 15 years down the line. Now, you said something about an antitrust um, legislation which changed things for you. I don't know the details of that. I know a little bit more in America here, and I actually want you to talk a little bit about it more. But isn't it kind of funny that the law had to step in to make what you're doing more legitimate? It's, like, um, <laughs> the- it's, 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 it's actually... It's actually it, it's it's sad. So for the youngsters listening to this podcast, looking back one and a half decade ago, you had to imagine they the youngsters probably don't even remember what Flash is. And, and like Flash memory. Oh, Adobe, oh, Adobe Flash. Sure. Adobe Flash. Where Flash was before Adobe. Adobe bought it. Flash. So we went from HTML to Flash, and then there were like these unwritten rules that if you were high end and prestigious on the internet, you had to have black backgrounds not white, because that was not chic. It was a taboo to list prices 
I'm not talking about RRP, yeah, list prices. No price was permitted at all. And <laughs> and e-com for the art industry was dominated by eBay. There was no credit to Corner 24 yet. So just to paint your picture, we were the first online. We were I was already selling on eBay, the pre-owned stuff mostly. Um, when Chrono 24 came along, uh, I'm good friends with Tim. We were the first AD in the world to sell on Chrono 24. Imagine how the brands perceived us. I'm not talking about new stuff, yeah? I'm talking about the pre-owned stuff. But even that, they didn't like. So so how, and, how did the brands perceive you? I mean, I really want you to get into that because it's shocking. I mean, I, I, I don't want to use profanity, but a pain <laughs> in the A, okay? They saw me as a pain in the A, but... The beauty of it is, you you gave me huge credit. Uh, we, we're a premier retailer in the Netherlands, but Netherlands is a small country, 70 million inhabitants. So that's, I, I, I don't know how many Cali has, but it's just a state in the US. Um, we, we are very passionate in what we do. And Europe is small. We're close to Switzerland. Uh, I'm a people's guy, so I know the brands and I know the sea level operations. So I got them on board by persuading them but I did need to nudge them. And I'm saying this sarcastically, yeah? <laughs> um, I really, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a pain in the A, as I say, because when I believe in something, um, I go for it. And, and I try to persuade the world. So... You, you got to give some insight as to what some of these conversations were. Because, okay, let's give some context. Okay. We're, we're still in the, the pandemic. Yeah. And the pandemic has been so great for watch collectors because over the last few years, being interested in watches, the hobby has been primarily online. People learn about watches first online. They oftentimes connect with retailers online. There's a lot of real-world experience, such as social events and wanting to see and touch the product. But it's it's what we say is a digital-first industry. Yeah. And to look back at 2007, when I started a blog to watch, they were so hostile, as, yeah. as we're going to continue to talk about, that it's almost shocking to think that we'd be in the place you are right now where if you aren't fully embracing digital in every way, and half of them still have only done it with you know one foot in the pond, yeah. um, you cannot do business in today's world. <laughs> you literally cannot. But for those that do, it's been fantastic because having to be at home stuck online has accelerated the yeah. hobby as opposed to retarded it because it's what because it's it's how people are engaging in their hobby and it's it it it's just I want people to recognize that just a 10 years ago even 5 years ago the mentality was so different right so I totally agree with you and I, and and I was about to say that um Fratello watches is Dutch so Robert Jan is a good friend of mine I was the first AD to advertise on his blog Right. Um, that was frowned upon as well. So when you started, you were a pioneer as well. Think about it. 15 years ago, you guys, the bloggers, were frowned upon. You you guys weren't even allowed to enter the booths in <laughs> affairs. No. Bloggers would ask me, hey, dude, can you get me in? So how much changed in the world? Yeah, brands, as you said just now, Ariel, if they are not digital first, they're almost dead in the water. They're prehistoric. So what I love about you, you're very smart you're very intellectual you're very analytical you're very you, you write wonderful analytical pieces about the industry uh, i get these newsletters i don't know if they're b2b or b2c but um i'm, I'm not quite sure you publish them actually on blog no watch, those are those are just just for the industry eyes you're talking about the industry newsletter that i've been exactly. doing for a while now yeah yeah, so, yeah that's so for our listeners for you guys. And if you guys that are listening are also working in the industry make sure that ariel puts you on the mailing list you gotta ask me yeah, okay, you got to hit, hit up Ariel because these analyses are cutthroat. You are second to none together with Serge Meillard's uncle, Pierre. Yeah. I love his columns. Whenever I get the Europa Star, the first thing I do, I flip to the backside to read his column on the last page. And I've been reading him some, ever since I'm a kid. And until you arrived, there's nobody who really got my gray cells going so that you say, hey, you change, <laughs> you change the scope of my analysis of my view of the industry. So um, here are two feathers for you. Um, so kudos. Thank um, you. So on topic of digital first, yeah, you're right. There are still brands that don't get it. And, and one of the things that I find amusing, and we're, we're jumping around topics here, I want to actually go back to some things, but when the brand started doing what you were doing, which is selling online, yeah. the funny thing that I noticed 
is it the reason they did it? Wasn't that, oh, the internet is the future, we really need to get on this. The reason they did it is they believed that their e-commerce store would be like an ATM machine for sales. Yeah. We're going to do no advertising and not even have staff. And yeah. our website is just going to go cha-ching sale, cha-ching sale. Like, they Correct. thought it was going to be that easy. Um, that, cut, that, that naivete is amusing, isn't it? Correct. It's and, and maybe to create more context for those listeners that don't know Ace Jewelers, we obviously started as classic brick and mortar. We switched in 2007 by adding a new store. So as you said, Ariel, trained staff, they're jewelers who start doing digital stuff. We do from A to Z. That means we stock the inventory, we don't outsource, we don't have a DC, we do everything ourselves, customer services by us, e-fulfillment is done by us, we write our own notes and wrap the gifts ourselves, and the only thing we don't do, obviously shipping within the Netherlands we do, but outside we outsource that. So up until then we do everything in-house. So it's a full-blown store we run, dedicated staff, um, and, and as you said. And indeed, a lot of brands thought it was an ATM and that can mint... Uh, money and press money. Um, so today we are an omni-channel operation, which when we started in 2007, that word didn't even exist. They were talking about cross-channel retail and then it became omni-channel retail. But I think that's very important to say, although in a pandemic it's digital first, I do always and still today, 15 years later, believe that for the luxury industry, it, it, it's 360. So touch it's it's full sensory it's it starts with online education starts online yes we have a lot of pure e-com sales from all over the world some brands don't want us to sell globally some brands ask us to sell globally so that's a bit confusing um and going into the nft space and web3 space um i think a lot is going to change there as well and exciting stuff as well i'm also now um, I can't say too much, but I'm heavily involved with uh, Origin Foundation in Switzerland. So th that's exciting stuff that's coming. Oh, with Vincent, huh? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> Vincent uh, Perial is a buddy of mine. And I had the honor to uh, to join them to, to brainstorm a bit and, and more to come. So I can't reveal too much, but um, it's where digital enables luxury and doesn't decimate it. Well, I think that luxury has done really, really well online. And we have this situation now where people are going crazy for certain watches, certain Rolexes and things like that. And watches aren't the only luxury items that are being sold at premium sometimes online. And this is so interesting to me because you take these items that are hot. You use the network effect of the internet to make them hot to a lot more people. Yeah. And then these things are sold out around the world. And this is incredibly impressive that they can be done for something that, you know, at least a few years ago, what was some of the brands? We don't want to be in every magazine. We only want to be in those magazines that reach the right people. When the reality is no, the reason that all these Rolexes and APs and, and Pateks are doing so well is that the mass market knows about them. They kind of like Ferrari. Yes, maybe mm -hmm. only some people can buy it, but some people can buy it because so many people around the world, no matter what their socioeconomic status is, knows that Ferrari means I have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And now that watches have been able to become more mainstream than ever in the last 25 years because of the internet, mm -hmm. you have these extreme uh, high valuations for those products which are popular. For me, that would be proof that the internet is not only a safe place for, for luxury, but as you said, it is the absolute future of it, even mm -hmm. though some of the managers still see it as more of an annoyance than an opportunity. Yeah, crazy. Right? That's what it is. It is, it is, it is crazy. It's crazy. And I'm, I'm very curious what the listeners uh, think about it. And I would love to read the comments after this podcast. Well, let, let's, let's back so, up and talk about the industry. Neither of us are Swiss. And uh, mm -hmm. we have to deal with a lot of people in Switzerland. And there's always these funny stories like, isn't it weird that the watch industry does or doesn't do that? And it comes down to what I'll say is conservatism. And let me explain mm -hmm. what I mean here. This is an industry that the people within it are taught that the way 
people did things in the past is always superior than the way people do things today, unless the things today prove themselves um, time and time again. This is like the sort of mentality there is that the, the, the tried and true way, yesterday's way is probably better than today's way. So we're always fighting this uphill battle when it comes to technology and innovation, because by definition, it didn't exist yesterday. So it, how could it be proved? Mm-hmm. Do you, do you agree, disagree? I just want to know agree, your thoughts I here. I agree. So for those that haven't visited Switzerland or haven't been in Europe a lot, what you need to imagine, Switzerland is literally stuck in between a lot of countries. And they managed throughout history to stay independent in their opinion. Okay? So they think they have this sense of independence, of solitude, and cutting, carving out their own way. Don't forget uh, security, because those <laughs> mountains are like a fortress. Yeah, and they've they've done well. So they excel, obviously, in watchmaking, banking, pharma, pharmaceuticals a bit, uh, obviously chocolates. Um, And the funny thing is they are trying to pave the way and innovate on both fintech and also security and cybersecurity. And in watchmaking, they also try to innovate. But you're right in what you're saying is that they bank on their own success and then always look for evolution instead of when revolutions come along, they're like an ostrich and stick their heads into the sand and think the storm will blow over. So I think, I think they've done business with too many bankers. And let me explain <laughs> that. And I, again, I'm not trying to insult any bankers, but frankly, I don't really care about your feelings, bankers. Um, when you do business with bankers, bankers like to make fun of people that take risk. And this is my problem with bankers. So like, oh, you you mean you you spent money on something and you didn't know that you were guaranteed to get a, a return on your investment? You're so yeah. stupid. And yeah. this is a very, very foolish way of looking at the world because most things that you should be spending on, you're not going to get a guaranteed investment. You want a guaranteed res- return, you expect very, very low returns. But we've, we've entered this era where people want high returns and and, and no risk. And the problem is this is a creative industry. I mean, you look at, I I like looking at models like the the Royal Oak uh, from Audemars Piguet and identifying that how long did it take to become popular between 1972 when they debuted it and whenever these things started to become mega popular? I mean, it celebrated its 40th anniversary in 2012 and it wasn't until recently that it was, it was, common to to spend over retail on the steel models. So that's Correct. over 40 years of quote-unquote investing in something that lost money certain years in order to get this point. If you told one of these bankers today that you would have to invest even more than five years to make a return, they would sit there and make fun of you. I think this mentality needs to start being ignored and understood as not being really relevant when it comes to making business decisions. Again, there's, there's always going to be another side of the opinion here, but we have to start embracing risk and stop being so obsessed with the fact that someone's going to make fun of you if you don't have a you know guaranteed ten percent return or something. I totally agree. So kudos to those brands on topic. Kudos to those brands that do take risk, and I, I'm very excited to see what HYT is going to do on topic of taking risks. Okay, and, uh, with, da- with with Davide uh, Cerato now uh, at Davide the helm. Cerato, yeah, and uh, and and uh, Vin- uh, we spoke about Vincent, so he's also in the background, uh, back on board again. It's funny. So, he, he, he's for people that don't know, Vincent Perriard is the co-founder of HYT. Originally, yeah. left. The brand briefly went into bankruptcy, only to be recovered not too long after, installs a new CEO. And of course, Davide being a clever guy is like, you know what? Vincent actually knew what he was doing. Let's see what he has to think about it. So that's just some context. Exactly. And then that's about taking risks. And and, and obviously in Switzerland and in all of Europe, to go bankrupt is frowned upon. But I, I love the U.S., I lived in the U.S., I studied in the U.S., and, and some things that I love about the U.S. are sky's the limit, it's literal, uh, you can live up, live your dream, and the American dream is real, and in the U.S., if you go bankrupt as an entrepreneur, good for you, because that's the part of the, the entrepreneurial school, the school of life, and in Europe, when you go bankrupt, oh, God forbid, you can't even set up a new limited company. Here, if you drive, let's say, a Ferrari, you spoke about Ferrari, ooh, they, they, they put you down. In the U.S., they come and congratulate you. So that's a big mentality shift. So talking about risk, 
um, in Switzerland, it's worse than the U.S., let's say. And, and let's what you talk, said about Let's talk about that. In America, you can go bankrupt for most purposes every seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the cadence in Europe? Because I know in Hong Kong, at least the last time I asked, it was every three years. So Hong Kong yeah. embraces yeah. risk even more. Yeah. America's somewhere in the middle. What about, I know it's different in Europe, but I, I know that it's actually a longer interval, meaning you it's, have to wait yeah, more it's, than it's seven lower. years. The, the, the cadence is lower because they're less they're more risk averse, so they take less risk. Why? Um, and Just out of curiosity, why? 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 Because you're punished more severely if you go bankrupt here. So, as I said, if you go bankrupt once, you have let's say a thick behind a thick behind your name, and then you can't set up a new limited company anymore. Um, socially, so is this you're like an official? Is this like an official? Like you? You know, you're a you're a you're a bad person to loan money to. Don't take checks from this person, or is it? Is it a social? Is it more like a social stigma? Both. 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 Wow. It has. It has. It has legal implications. It has fiscal financial implications, and definitely social implications. Whereas in the U.S., it's a badge of honor, and you're almost you're almost a bad entrepreneur if you didn't go bankrupt at least once. Here you have a stigma for the rest of your life. Things are changing. Yes, we're evolving in Europe. Well, I learned something. As I studied entrepreneurialism, you know, I have a background in law and, you know, you, mm-hmm. you, my, 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 my education was, you know, how to help business people, you know, stay out of trouble and conduct yeah. business. Yeah. And one of the things you notice when you sort of look at the lives of a lot of su- successful people is they tried things a bunch of times and then one of them sort of, they got right and led them to success. But they had to endure all these failures and embarrassments mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in order to you know, do it a little bit different next time. And so mm-hmm. the history of success is really also the history of failure Correct. and trying again. And so knowing Correct. that, like it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. Why would Europe be so adverse? And again, I don't want to be so, you know, it's a whole, Europe is a big place, but it seems that the culture is similar. So averse to this sort of startup spirit, because look at the important so, technology companies yeah. in, in Europe. There's, there's almost none of them. Exactly. And that's exactly the point I want to say. So one of the Mantras I use, especially in my tech startups, because besides age jewelers, which I try to instill with tech startup mentality, I have actual two tech startups next to age jewelers. So I say... Are these watch-related or is this some other one, thing? One is watch-related, which I'll come back to, and one okay. is actually a social enterprise. So what I want to say is the mantra I love is by Samuel Beckett, who said, fail, fail, fail better. Right, so it's try and trial and error, try a lot of stuff, and that's that's why Silicon Valley is tech mecca, and in Europe, I think there are two reasons, and it's mostly historical. Okay. It's the old world. We in Europe are the old world. We think we are the best. We think we invented civilization, which obviously is not true, but okay, and we invented the Western world, and we've been doing things and with ups and downs, and ah, we'll endure. But I think that a lot of policymakers and politicians in Europe are not aware that we're the Titanic and we're about to sink. And in Holland, they're starting to inject startup mentality. There are more incubators. The government created a huge incubator fund, and it's coming. But you see, on aerospace, we're not succeeding. Flight, so so regular uh, aeronautical stuff. So we have Airbus versus Boeing. Not really coming off the ground. Military, not so much of a success. Economically, uh, we're a bit in turmoil. Brexit to me is the biggest failure of the EU, yeah? It's a big, big, big failure. It's, um, a, bit, it's a bit silly, I have to admit. Yeah, yeah. So, so it, But it's a political failure, and, and it, it's, it's incoherent. So whereas the U.S. is coherent, we can generalize a lot of things about EU Europe, but as you said, Europe is not the same, and that's maybe the biggest problem. Um, so yeah, so historically seen, they're risk averse, um, and 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 the U.S. has a frontiers mentality and actually never lost it, and I don't think we'll lose it anytime soon. Whereas the whole world thinks that China will take over, I don't think so. They'll come up to par, but. That, that that frontiers mentality, that innovation mentality. Now, I, I want I want to hear a little bit more about this. Isn't this isn't just to sort of like, you know, stroke my American ego? But you said you lived in the U.S. a little bit and you admired yeah. a little bit about the sort of notion of the American dream, the American yeah. spirit. And it's been damaged and it's been beaten. But yeah. 
and I want to explain how I see this. And I, I, I make it sound a little bit crude, but it's essentially this. In America, part of the American dream is harboring the, the legitimate belief that someday you as just an average Joe can do something to be much more rich than your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. It's this idea that you can become exponentially wealthy out of luck, like the lottery, or because business allows you to just make that much money. It does come with the fact that you can also be homeless. So there are downsides to this. But mm-hmm. this idea that there isn't a ceiling on your success. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we actually celebrate people who, quote, win the game. Yeah. Right, the lottery for me is this very interesting ritualization of this notion because the lottery literally is the manifestation of any idiot with some luck be- can become stupid money. Right, yeah. it's a ritualization that celebrates this interesting element. And and alternatively, if you took this thing away from people, if you took away this genuine belief that tomorrow they could become super rich and wealthy based upon their efforts and, or maybe luck. This would fundamentally change in a complete and dramatic way the entire American uh, business mechanism. And it, this, this small, small idea is unbelievably crucial. And, and that's why they say opportunity, because what I'm describing is opportunity. And, they, and the truth is that a lot of places, even if there feels like there's not a, lo- a lot of opportunity in America right now, a lot of places in the world have way, way less. And it, yeah. it, to me, that's really what it's about. Well, it's funny you say that. Maybe you because you're in the U.S., suffer maybe a little bit from tunnel vision, which I don't mean in a bad way. But where in the world is there more opportunity? Still not anywhere else than the U.S. I'm not even speaking about North America. I'm talking about the U.S. So there isn't any more in almost any field, um, academically, intellectually, uh, technology, uh, even blue-collar, manufacturing, so, yeah, so it's interesting. Um, but I think that we're deviating a bit, and I don't want to alienate our listeners. Should we get back <laughs> to watches? Well, look, this is what's really important about this. This is what's going on in the mind of the people that like watches, the people that make watches, mm-hmm. the people that talk about watches, and the people that sell watches. Watch collectors are some of the most sophisticated people in the world mm-hmm. who inhabit all areas of high thinking. Mm-hmm. And so I actually agree. This has... Not so much to do with watches, but this is what's on the mind of our peers. Okay. And in the future, I want people to be able to listen to content like this and hear you and recognize that you're not just sitting there thinking like, watch, 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 selling watch, watch. Like, there's so much going on in your mind, even though from the outside, you live and breathe um, watches, you know, out of your base in Amsterdam. Okay, so let's plug my other startup then. So because I live and breed watches, and I've been dreaming watches as a little kid, because I've been fortunate that I that I was born into a Jewish family, and God instilled the passion. But but it's 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 a virus that that definitely won't go away, unlike COVID, because that will fade away one day and hopefully soon. Um, is watchbase.com. We started this as a passion project, no revenue model. Um, we built it because we wanted it ourselves and thought it didn't exist. What did we do? We said, I'm familiar this, we with want- this, but t- I want to tell- talk to more about it. I can't wait to hear more. So thank you. So basically, when I need to summarize it in an elevator pitch, it's the IMDB slash Wikipedia of wristwatches. What did we do? We want our dream is to, en- to enlist all watches ever produced with as much as possible objective data. So... We're not sponsored. Nobody pays us. Nobody influences us. We list wristwatches and created a matrix. What do I mean by that? We cross-reference the caliber that's in there and then create a whole database about a caliber. So let's say the IWC Pilot 3717 has a Valjoux 7750 as a base, but IWC calls it caliber 79390 or whatever, yeah? I'm incorrect on the number, but hypothetically. So, right, right. So, uh, Breitling uses caliber 13. That's a 7750 as well. So, when a brand lists a caliber, we'll have all the specs in there, including modifications, list what the base caliber is. That's clickable. So, when you, so we have a whole database of calibers. And when you li- click the 7750, it reverses it and shows you all the watches that uses that caliber. So that's what I mean by the matrix. It's not the movie. So it's, no, it's, 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 it's a so matrix it's, table. 
I, I want to talk a little bit about this because I I support this a lot. Um, early, early on when I started writing about watches, I think as early as 2008, 2009, I recognized a very interesting problem that the industry had. Mm-hmm. And that was there, there was no list of all the watch brands. No. Now, the, the thing that you're making, which is the database, the database you're making has to begin <laughs> with a list of all of the watch brands. This is like the most crucial thing. Yeah. And I recognize that this encyclopedia of watches would be so hard to do because you would have to first build that list. And there's yeah. all these little random brands around the world. Like, think yeah. about the brands that just exist inside of China. If yeah. you're a completionist, you want this database to have, like, everything. Correct. And maybe that's idealistic, but the idea that there wasn't even a single list around the world of all the watch brands, which yeah. is a list that would change every single couple of months, yeah. um, to do what you're doing is a seriously impressive feat that requires both technology and an enormous amount of hu- human effort. And to design a database, it's like it's like reverse engineering the game of the game of chess. Uh, not that's too much credit, but but it's a passion project, as I said. It's not a commercial project. We try obviously to self-sustain and stay independent. So what we do is to give back to the watch fam, the watch community. The front end is open, free for everyone. Um, everybody can enter the database, search. You can even create my watch base profile. You can store your watches there, favor them. Um, we try to list prices on every SKU, every watch reference, both new retail price and market value, which is very difficult. So not oh, every I have a use for your company. That. I have a use for your company. I'm gonna tell. I'm gonna talk to you offline about this. I have an interesting awesome. idea for you. Okay. So we try to do that. And um, we kept it five years ad free, but at a certain point we had to add a little subtle ads. And then what we mostly do for Ace is, Jewelers, of course. Actually, we don't. <laughs> oh, there is, there is literally no. There's literally no connection with Ace Jewelers besides that I'm owner of both, but there is no um, relationship there. And we try to keep it really objective. And um, we actually sell data feeds, so we have. Actually, brands buying data off of us, retailers, uh, insurance companies, um, etc. And, and what, also what kind of data? media like, publications. How, how would they use this data? So they can use it, um, for example, when a, a retailer that has e-com, instead of doing every manual, every SKU manually entry into their website, they simply buy the data and upload it to their own website. Um, imagine insurers want to know values. Um, imagine an app. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be discreet and won't mention names, but let's say there's a watch collecting community app and they want um, auto predictive input. So when you start typing um, right. Omega speed, it gives you a drop down list, right? So instead of manually entering all the specs, it auto. Okay, so I have a potential client for you for that. Thank you. So, 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 so that's something that we also do, and I just want to share that to underline the passion for the industry, and that's it. Before we go any further, a quick announcement, and we thought we would tell you, the listeners of the podcast, all about it first. A blog to watch is hiring. We are looking for a social media manager to look after all the Instagram, Facebook, comment section, the website, all the social media stuff that you can think of. So if you're interested, get your CV together and any relevant experience and email the boss man himself, Ariel, at ablogtowatch.com. We really look forward to hearing from you. So with that done, it's back to the show. So wait, wait, wait. When you built this, you this was this is not new. So the 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 thing that you're doing right now to make a little bit of money, which seems clever and seems like there's a way to grow that, that's probably not what you had in mind. What problem were you trying to solve by creating this database? And this is what I mean with your analytical mind. This question cuts straight to the core. So I co-founded this together with my friends Alvin and Dala. So I have co-founders. We're all watch freaks and we're doing this together. And what we wanted to do is because we wanted to know a few things. Is a movement really manufactured or not? And there was no transparency in what movement, yes, no, aspects. And we wanted a back catalog for products that weren't produced anymore. So imagine the majority of brands, or actually there's hardly any brand who lists historic 
pieces that they stopped producing on their own website. As far as I know, uh, Omega is the only one where you can see old models. Yeah, I don't know. Even I don't even know if it's everything, but you're right. Yeah, they have it's, some. It's definitely not everything, but at least they respect their watch fans and show you what they used to produce. So, out of that necessity, I, I'm I'm a watch freak. So I I for years, ever since I'm a kid, I collect auction catalogs because I love to see what's coming on the auction. But I used it as a reference library, right? What do I love about Instagram accounts of vintage dealers to see what amazing watches were used to be produced? So, for example, Ronnie M. I love what he does, eclectic shapes. Uh, George Bamford does his podcast about oddball watches. Um, Still today, I see and hear about watches I never knew existed. So it's really out of passion that we started. And then what I found interesting um, Chrono 24 becomes today the benchmark for market value, right? Right. And that's a well, bit what happened in the diamond industry with Rappaport. But that's, but that's, a, bad idea, but that's a bad thing. Because that's it, it's a bad thing because it's not, not objective. It's not, not at all. A, it's not a good thing because it's not objective. And um, and, and they Mar- don't... I, people are obsessed with this notion of market value. You and I yeah. know that's not really a thing. No, it isn't. It's it's a, it's, it, it, it's a fad. It, it, it's, it's a figment of our minds. But... And, 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 it's a and, dream. It's a fantasy. We like yeah, to yeah, think it's, it's there. It doesn't exist. The only thing that's exist. real is an MSRP. And that's also made up, but at least that's consistent. That's consistent. But, but okay, you know what? Let's, you studied law. I studied economics. You, start, you spoke about risk. And risk is, is formulated as beta, B, beta in the risk. The higher the beta, the more profits. No risk is no profit. So that's a binary analogy, which you were... Uh, bashing bankers. If that's the way they think, they are indeed bad bankers. If they went to a good uh, business school, studied economics, they know the bigger the risk, the bigger the the profits. Now about market value, I do think they there is something as an average price, and then you need to track old pricing. But that's not done by anyone because it's very difficult to to grasp and to to encompass. We speak about auction prices right that's market value but that's usually the exceptional pieces but but i'm interested in the long tail the other 80% or even 95% because the auction is less than 5% well but but okay that's let's that's, let's say this and this is my two cents on market value market value as it's used today in the watch space is basically a tool by people who sell watches to say that the market value is high, higher than it is. Mm-hmm. There's too much incentive for the market value to appear higher than people are actually willing to spend. Mm-hmm. That market value is, 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 isn't controlled. So market mm-hmm. value today is controlled by people who want to control market value. Mm-hmm. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't have built-in credibility based upon the incentive oh, behind sure. it. You know, we, we have a Dutch saying with pre-owned. And we've been saying that. My dad, taught, my dad told me that ever since I'm a kid. And I'd, I'd love it to translates hear badly in English, but translated, it says, the value of something pre-owned is what the madman is willing to pay for it. <laughs> the madman? I was going to say what someone's willing to pay for it. Why do they have to be crazy? The, the, any, the, the value is, is basically illogical, irrational. And there is no baseline and there is no... A uh, 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 fixed rate, as you say. So it underlines what you say. Every for those that are new to the game, and what you see in Corner Twenty Four doesn't mean that's the market value. And in that sense, I do agree with you, Ariel, one hundred percent. Look, every and time, that's an ambition we have. We try to create curves of medians. Okay, everyone does. And again, yeah. I understand why you'd want it. Very valuable information, but there isn't really a very good way of tracking it. I mean, no. I personally use eBay. I know that eBay is a little bit more common in the United States. Chrono 24 is more popular there. There's similarities yeah. and a lot of differences. But yeah. at the end of the day, we have to have one source, right? Yeah. I've chosen eBay because I feel that eBay is the easiest place to buy and sell. Mm-hmm. Um, there are fees, of course, but it's the lowest barrier mm-hmm. to listing, to selling. You have a relatively mm-hmm. high audience. And eBay and is very unforgiving. The fact is that they introduced the authenticity check. Yes. That's yes. I, that I love. That's a great move. It is great, and they've got more yeah. stuff like that coming. But yeah. what what eBay ha- has done is made a buyer's market 
primary. It's not yeah. a seller's market. So yeah. if something is priced too high on eBay, it simply doesn't sell. If it's priced right, it does sell. Yeah. And ideally there's a record of it. And that's why I like eBay, because it's not at the price that people want to sell it at. It's it's oftentimes has to be pushed down, especially in a competitive space with multiple models to what people mm-hmm. are willing to spend. And a wonderful example is going to eBay and looking at all the Patek Philippe Nautilus 5711 watches that are priced way above retail that are unsold. Um, I haven't done it recently, but there was dozens of them, if not over 100 5711s at some crazy multiple on retailer on eBay, completely up listed, not for sale. Okay, If you have hundreds of watches at prices which are far over retail and they're not selling, guess what? They're not worth that. And so for me, you can use that as a lesson. So I'm going to pivot this into the question of how do you upload this data? Obviously, there's some automated ways of doing it, but you must have like a a team of data crunchers. Exactly. We do everything in-house. As you've noticed the pattern, maybe if you're listening to this full 40 minutes that we're chatting already, I'm a bit of a control freak and I like quality. Hence, I like watches. Um... We do it in-house. We could have had 100, 200, 300,000 entries if we did copy-paste and automate it. Every single page on our website, therefore SKU of a watch or a movement, which are two, da- two databases basically, are manually uploaded and quality checked by ourselves. That means we're going at a slow pace, but we have nobody pushing us. I don't owe anybody any answers. And... Therefore, it's quality checked. Um, so it's done in Amsterdam. We don't outsource this to cheap. And the funny thing is that ha- you have to bootstrap it. You know what I mean? Like you have no yeah. choice. You got to bootstrap yeah. it. Yeah. And how Watchbase has been around a while. This has been a I hobby for... the seventh year, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Seventh year, yeah. I think so, yeah. And it was very quiet. I remember when I first stumbled upon it and then yeah. I was looking to who owned it. I realized that you guys were behind. I was like, that's cool. It's a good hobby. Um. It's 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 an admirable thing to take it to the next level. Obviously, you need to even further increase your efforts. But I completely yeah. agree with you yeah. that there's a lot of use to it. And what I like about the most is it's part of this emerging group of services that are for the consumer and are not B2B. And there's so much B2B in this space. I think there needs to be more B2C because yeah. all the money in the watch space ultimately comes for the consumer, right? And, Only. And, and, and so they're going to vote that way. And I think the ultimate testament to this is that despite the best efforts of the established corporate industry, e-commerce happened because of overwhelming consumer interest. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't for years and years of sustained consumer interest buying watches, none of these brands would have voluntarily been like, oh, okay. So maybe you can answer the question, why were they so resistant from a business perspective to selling watches online? Um, they started all for the wrong reason, including offline retail, okay? Because it's an evolution. Up until the 50s, all brands produced watches for retailers and even customized them, right? Today, and, and we saw a historic piece with the 5711 Patek Philippe made for Tiffany with Tiffany Odell. For those that don't know, Tiffany actually has been retailing for 175 years, the brand Patek Philippe. Today only sold, if I'm not mistaken, on Fifth Avenue, New York, and um, in San Francisco. Yeah, very small number of them. Very small numbers, and they are allowed to print their name, Tiffany & Co., on the dial by themselves because they're granted that by Patek Philippe. That was the norm up until the 50s. A lot of people don't know that. Now, today we have collabs, and then it was... a business where you had manufacturing, wholesale, retail, consumer. The brands all started retail for the wrong reasons, because they wanted more margin. That goes exactly the same for e-com, because they thought, as you said, e-com is probably a ATM machine and a printing press for money. That's why they went into it. It's not out of passion. It's not out of belief. Why do Rolex and Patek still don't have their own retail operation? Because in that sense, we were just bashing the Swiss a little bit that they're old school, not innovative. Risk aversion. Pardon? It's all about risk aversion. Retailers take all the risk. They give you the money to produce the watches. But they have a different analogy. They also say, hey, we're manufacturers. We're not retailers. Retail is a profession. We don't want to add a profession to our list of skills that we already encompass. So that's also an analogy. So if a brand says, hey, 
our strategy is to become a retailer because we love it or we think we know better than our retailers, good for you. Go for it. Okay? But that's why I think they're them. not doing well. I've said to them, selling watches is one industry, making watches is another. This sort of like vertically integrated approach that you're obsessed with, you'll never be able to do because you guys are never going to invest in the staff and the departments. Yeah. You know, I show them successful companies that, that are vertically integrated like Apple. I'm like, yeah. look at the number of departments and employees. Look at the, the, look at the size of Apple. Look what they spend to make it all possible. You guys are a mid-sized business on a good day. You guys think yeah. you're going to do this multinational nonsense? Yeah. What's wrong with you? Okay, so let's talk about that. Why does Apple do so? well they're 100 percent consumer centric as you said if you're not consumer centric and you do 100 percent everything for the consumer you won't never ever make mount everest the top of mount everest and that's why apple is successful besides that they're super innovative and they even make stuff that a consumer didn't even know they need who knew they needed well an ipod was easy because that's an evolution of a walkman but an iphone we were all typing on, on keypads and suddenly we had a touchscreen, you know, so um, or an iPad. Who, who ever thought that we need iPads? So that's really, really, really a, 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 an amazing case study. But, but watch brands, they hardly do stuff that's 100% consumer centric and no. out of passion. It's all about, it's all about the dollars. Well, look, and that's let's, dangerous. Let's... But let's go back to this thing with Patek Philippe and Rolex being so dedicated to the model of sell selling wholesale. Mm -hmm. It does make them look like you know good guys, and and I agree that it's it's more friendly to share with retailers, which makes sense. But it's all about risk allocation. To make a production of a million watches or half a million watches like Rolex does is so expensive. The material is alone. Mm -hmm. What they do is they get money in advance through through orders. Mm -hmm. They use that money to fund the productions, and then that th that production already has a home to go to. They don't have to sit on any inventory that they don't want to sit on. Mm -hmm. And so they have this all this beautiful ultimate model of risk aversion, while they still dictate almost every single thing to the retailer. In fact, a lot of retailers do not sell Rolex because you basically can't do anything else. They 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 barely let you sell other stuff. And once you do Rolex stuff, it's sort of like you're a Rolex slave. No, nothing against yeah, Rolex, but yeah. it's it's a it's a it's brilliant for Rolex. Well, I do have to defend them in one sense. Um, it's I not really, an attack on Rolex. No, no, it's not an attack. It's an analysis. So let's analyze more. So we are not authorized Patek or Rolex dealers. That's a disclaimer. We did become recently the first Tudor dealer in the Netherlands. That's not a Rolex dealer. So that's a okay. break from yeah, the old saw, school okay, strategy. Okay, so Tudor's new. I saw that you carry Tudor. Yeah. Great brand. Yeah. yeah. So that's the only insight and experience I have with the Rolex group. Now, I've heard all the horror stories. I know a lot of Rolex dealers, a lot of friends of mine are Rolex dealers, authorized dealers. And literally, I can promise you, they don't dictate anything. They, I, I was scared for the stories when I got on board. It's out of their own strength and success that retailers are willing. And it, what happens is with Rolex, though, it's a golem. You, it's such a success story and it's becoming more and more that you created a monster in your store. Obviously, for your cash flow, it's a positive monster. For all your other brands in the store, it's less of a success story because it dominates your operations. Okay, but um, that 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 brands today have a lot of demands. Yes, including Rolex and Patek, but they're not exclusive, and it's not because of their success. So that's so, something that so talk I about can share that. from my experience. What is the modern relationship between a successful multi-brand retailer such as yourself yeah. and these watch brands? You know, talk yeah. a little bit about what that's like. Help help just people understand. Yeah. Do you have a closed relationship? Is it distant? How does it affect how you do business so, with consumers? You know what so, I mean? So so there's a big difference between so we have a warm relationship. Because we, as a family business, are independent, family-owned, family-run. We don't have investors. I don't have banks behind me. I can do whatever I want. We started as jewelers. So my dad is a goldsmith. My brother is a goldsmith. We design, manufacture, diamond, fine jewelry in Amsterdam. That's our core business. Because my dad loved watches, he added watch, watch brands, slowly went up market, mid-market, high-end. 
Now, my brother and I, fortunately, also love watches. So we invest heavily in that. So 50-50 jewelry watches, both in stock, allocation, sales, etc. The relationships are warm because we try to sell what we love. So we believe in the brands that we sell. We are people's people. So, and any business is people's business. So we invest in relationships. We're close to Switzerland. That helps. So the relationships are warm. Are they very demanding? Hell yes. And then if we, <laughs> if we, if we analyze those relationships, for me, the big difference is, and it's a lot spoken about in, in, in media, but maybe consumers don't get why indies are so hot. And then you go to the psychology behind the facade of the watches and the watch brands and the marketing is the philosophy is different. Why? The big brands that are owned by consolidated groups, although all three big groups, four groups, I'm talking about LVMH, I'm talking about Richemont, I'm talking about Caring Group, um, are family-owned. Their family is behind that. They're the majority shareholders. They are run like a publicly listed company, and maybe a publicly listed company should be run for shareholders' value, although I'm pivoting slowly as I reached the midlife crisis and 40 years old. That we I should say go screw to, shareholders. Yeah, yeah, you should go to shareholders' value. No, no, I, I, don't, I don't. I think shareholder value just means that nobody takes any risks. I think that's what's happened. This obsession with shareholder value. It's all well, about you have managers creating. that are incentivized by the share price. Yeah. I don't they, say it's oh. good, yeah? But if you decide to be publicly listed, that's how markets work today, unfortunately. I don't think watch brands should be publicly listed. No, because- that makes no sense. Look, these, most of these brands should lose money. They should be vanity brands, rich corporations that want to have a cool brand at the very top where they can have parties and make great gifts to their buddies. Yeah. That's what that's what a watch brand should be. This notion that it should be like publicly traded and it's going to somehow have a return on your investment. Every extra penny needs to be reinvested in exactly. R&D and marketing. Every exactly. extra penny. Exactly. And then if we take that analogy or that philosophy or that analysis that you just made and project that onto privately owned companies, where the big behemoths are Patek and Rolex, AP as well, but they have a 100% flip side reversed philosophy to retail, whereas they cut out all the independent retailers, multi-brand retailers, and went 100% Louis Vuitton style of monobrand boutiques. That's a different analogy, so they're the odd one out. But if you look at the family-owned, family-run, long-term scope, not three years, not two years, not one year, not five, 10, 20 years ahead, and they take risk. They make cool stuff. It's made out of passion, and therefore they try thrive today. That's my philosophy. So is there ever going to be a divestment, meaning so many of the important watch brands are owned by corporate interests today? Mm-hmm. Of course, companies can be bought and sold, and mm-hmm. they have mm-hmm. many times over. Mm-hmm. Is there a possibility that some of these brands are going to return to a more independent state? I think so. Let's take, for example, I've been saying this for years. I think that, for example, Richemont should sell off Beaumarchais and Dunhill just out of respect for those brands. And I believe if these become independent, they'll thrive more. I, I, I have to say that sounds like a very wise suggestion. For example, because there is no love for Bowman and Dunhill in the company. Honestly, uh, there are a lot of great people at Richemont. The family, Rupert, are visionary. They do love watches. They do love luxury. They do invest. For a publicly listed company, they have a relatively long-term scope. They invest in good people. Uh, They are relatively innovative. But how long have they been trying already? And Bohm is just too low-end for Richemont. I say cut it loose just for the sake of it. It's like that philosophy that when you love somebody, set them free. And if they're yours, they'll come back to you. And if they don't, they don't. You know what I'm saying? Let's actually talk about that for a minute, you know, with Richemont. They own... You know, YNAP and Mr. Porter and Watchfinder, they have been really trying to get into the e-commerce game. And I guess this is sort of the the last topic we have time for, is this idea that the independents in the watch retail space seem to be the only ones really thriving in e-commerce. That something about the sort of slow, clunky, 
complicated operating of these big companies, the online space, prevents them from doing well. And we see um, a relative failure, at least in Europe and North America, to have a big impact in large corporate multi-brand you know, brand retailers online. And we also see that they there isn't really a, much of a strategy or anything that they're able to figure out how to do. That There's a lot of stagnancy and stuff like that. So, you know, it's similar to my case. Being an independent watch retailer, similar to being independent watch media, mm-hmm. seems to give us an agility to mm-hmm. thrive in the online space that doesn't exist for a larger entity Yeah, right now. I agree. I agree. Is this going to last this, for, like, how long is this going to last for? Because nothing, well, I think that, 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 it will last maybe another decade. As soon as, as, as there is no hardcore revolution, although COVID could be seen as a revolution on on a, on a world scale, and, and it, it it didn't change society. It did, but in consumer spend, maybe it only accelerated things. Um, and it's not a war. People make a comparison that it's a war. It's like wartime, but it isn't. N- nothing stays the same. Everything is in flux. But I think that what we see now, if Ceteris paribus, so the Latin phrase that everything stays the same and one little thing changes. I don't think much will change. So uh, uh, it's it, we're, it seems in a winner's takes all uh, flow of things. So what we see now, I think the winners will stay stay winners. I think that some pricing we see those are bubbles, like we see in real estate, like we see with cryptocurrencies and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, my biggest worry is that if the brands specifically don't wake up and we don't educate the younger generation to read time in a round manner. So what do I mean by that? In an analog way. And we don't educate them in elementary schools, high schools, to read time with hands and only digital. This whole discussion will be irrelevant in 15, 20 years because Wristwatches will have the same destiny that pocket watches have today. I think so. Yeah. I, 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 I also write some columns. A few years ago, I wrote a column about time is not round anymore. Why? I read so many studies that there are many, many kids in the UK, 21%, I believe, if I remember the percentage correctly, does not know how to read an analog clock. What happens? They sit in a classroom, need to do an exam. They're not allowed to use smart devices. No phone, no smartwatch on their wrist. They have two hours for an exam. They don't know how to read an analog clock. They freak out because they don't know how long is left on the exam. Okay, okay. Well, I, I want to comment here. I don't disagree with you. You're right. right. There is a large percentage of the young population that grows up not knowing how to read an analog clock. With that said, I don't think that that's a barrier, and here's why. I believe that the popularity of traditional watches and pop culture as a desired status symbol and luxury item for men mm-hmm. is attractive such that you can learn how to read it after you start wearing the product. I was wearing watches for most of my life. I didn't get my first analog watch until I was 18 years old. Mm -hmm. And it took me a few years to learn how to read it comfortably because digital is that much easier. So I am an early version of that generation. I learned digital first, but I was able to pick it up. Maybe not as well as some... What what I love about Apple Watches and Tag Heuer Connected, whatever, the irony is the most popular watch faces on these digital watches are analog dials. Because they're prettier. That's ironic, okay? No, it's not. Because digital dials are effective, but often not beautiful. And we like beauty in our timepieces. This is an essential component. Nobody likes wearing a watch they think is ugly. Nobody. No, I agree. So analog dials have the edge on aesthetics almost every single time. I love your positivity. So let's... Hope that you're 100% right. Um, I do think that 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 brands should have a longer scope. Invest in these things. I I I, I finished my column with a, a, a final note by saying if I was Swatch Group, I would produce in those Chinese factories that they own, which they say they don't own. Produce these cheap wall clocks with the brand Flick Flock or Swatch on it, and donate them to all the schools in the world. Oh yeah, that would that be good. Long-term I, I, investment. Look, you you are correct that 
there is this problem with people forgetting these things. Look, people, you know, I don't think the kids in school are learning how to do handwriting anymore, you know, cursive. Mm-hmm. There's all these things that are going to go yeah. away and, and yeah. there's pluses and minuses. I, you know, is that going to kill the, uh, the pen industry? No. Again, mechanical watches have all these wonderful qualities about them that have never been about reading the time easily or even being accurate. Yeah. And people still prefer them. So yeah. that's why I feel very comfortable with this. Now, if we had this discussion prior to the smartwatch emergence as we have it now, mm-hmm. I would have agreed with you that traditional watches are going to have even more of an uphill battle. But now what it gets me so excited is all the data I've seen suggests that having watches on people's wrists, even if they're – yeah, people get used to wearing it. You don't have it. One, it's a good thing because it – teaches them to put something on their wrist. So that's a good thing. And I agree. I agree. The person that doesn't wear the smartwatch is going to get a lot of attention specifically because it's not a smartwatch. You're yeah. not wearing a smartwatch right now. What is that and why? Yeah. I want to know. How yeah. beautiful is that for watch sales? Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And we see that already with the millennials and even uh, Generation Y and uh, we're going into Z. And, and, and one of that, those brands that really thrives is Nomos. So you see kids 16, 18 are willing to spend $1,000. And they say, hey, I want something mechanical and I want a simple dial. Less is more. And that's the anti-movement to all these pinging and notifications and buzzing and uh, social media. And they, they just want to disconnect visually oh, yeah. and, and, and digitally. So that's interesting. So ha- I can Having a you. clean dial that just tells you the time is such a soothing and clean yeah. and rewarding experience to read. Yeah. You know, you never get that from growing up with Casio. I love Casio. I grew up with Casio. Yeah, me too. I have yeah. tons of G-Shock watches. But when you just have like a simple time-only, elegant dial, you know, some nice Dauphine hands or just some classic thing, yeah. it just makes your, 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 your head so much happier to look at. Yeah. I totally agree. So, okay, so final question. Sure. You've designed a couple of limited edition watches sold by Ace Jewelers. A lot of them were with Nomos, as you said. What did you learn about how hard it is to come up with a winning design in 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 doing that those exercises of being a put, putting yourself in the shoes as a, of a watch designer? The fortunate thing is we had the creative freedom to do what we love because we worked with amazing partners. We had the financial freedom because we had nobody pressuring to, that it has to become a grand success financially. And I hate this game that it has to sell out in an X amount of minutes or seconds or days. Uh, yeah, that whole ball game is also BS, totally um, BS. in my opinion. So it's super difficult. Um, let's take the one of the things that I'm uh, – forget about Beauty of design. So you spoke about the Royal Oak, Gerald Genta. He came up with the Nautilus, the, the Royal Oak, etc. In the 70s, cutthroat, innovative designs. I think, by the way, I want it on the record because this is what we're doing. We're, we're, we're making a, uh, we're taking minutes of history in watchmaking. I think Fabrizio Bonamassa at Bulgari um, had a big task to take all Genta designs within the Bulgari catalog. And, and come up with new designs. And, and and it's not a secret that I'm a big fan of the Octo Finissimo. Um, so he's a true inspirator for me and an amazing designer um, today. So design is, is, I have utmost respect for designers. It's creativity. And and let's take the Lange one, for example, that, that the golden ratio with the triangle, with the positioning of the central axis, the date, uh, the hour markers, etc. M- making an asymmetrical watch, you know, look Symmetrically, nice. Symmetrically, yeah, no, asymmetrical, but golden ratio. So um, that's cool. Yeah, I, ca- the, I call it asymmetrical, but balanced. Exactly. Very well put. Um, my, the one that I'm most proud of, which was the most difficult thing, was the first collab we did with Nomos, which we honored the art movement, the style, which is a bit of the counterpart, the Dutch counterpart of the German Bauhaus movement, where we made took a simple watch, the Orion, very clean, and made it a bit funky, but very intellectual and very discreet. Every hour marker has a different length and different thickness. And interesting, interesting. Yeah. So you're so, so you're you're you like the you like being playful right now. 
Yeah. So so we did that. We did a series, Amsterdam series. So the Amsterdam colors are black, white, red. So we did that on that team. The last collab that we did was blue is the ace color. The Dutch color is orange. So mix that. So that was an easy one. Okay. That's an easy thing, but always respectful to the original designs. Um, so, so it's all about having fun, right? It's watches we want to wear, something we love, and we want to have a bit of fun. Thank you so much. Alon, why don't you go ahead and just plug uh, the various places you want people to check out your stuff, the, the website of the uh, store, and anything else you want people to check out. Thank you so much, Ariel. Um, whomever uh, wants to know more about us, I invite them to check our website, which is acejewelers.com, A-C-E-J-E-W-E-L-E-R-S.com. You can find us on all the socials. We're most active on uh, Instagram, which is at Ace Jewelers, and for ladies, at Miss Ace Jewelers. Or just Google us and hit us up. We are watch freaks as well, and we're always answering any question. Alon Ben-Joseph, thank you so much uh, for this, uh, this wonderful discussion on this episode of Superlative Podcast, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. <laughs>